0: I'm Kate Mara, and you're listening to The Audible Original, American Football, presented by Michael Strahan and narrated by me. Sure, we all have our favorite teams and chase the excitement all season, but just how did football get its start, then explode in popularity? I'm taking you through the fast-paced tale of American football, its central figures, and how, rife with class conflict, football transitions from an amateur sport to one of the most prolific and valuable leagues in the world. The dramatic history is bloodier, dirtier, and more tumultuous than you know. Listen to American football and other great storytelling at audible.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: American Football is an Audible original produced by The History Channel, Misher Films, and Smack Entertainment.
2: The NFL is a team comprised of many, many teams. Owners, players, stadium workers, officials, all working to make a game a winning product for the players, the fans, and all others involved. While it may seem like a well-oiled machine at this point, That's because all of the teams worked so diligently at making it appear so. But before the machine was pumping out the prodigious product we now enjoy, it was still a team trying to work out the kinks and understand the summation of its parts. It was 1925, and the experiment that was the NFL was about to be tested. They now had an opponent, and they were about to find out if every one of them had the singular focus and commitment teams have to win Or be stopped. I'm Michael Strahan, and this is the season finale of American Football, Chapter 8 The Grange War.
0: The sport of American football was a game of war played on a battlefield with two opposing sides trying to advance in each other's territory. But in 1926, those battles shifted from the field into the boardroom. Forget Canton versus Massillon or Thorpe versus Pollard. This fight was Joe Carr versus CeCe Pyle. The Purist versus The Showman.
3: This is Aaron Andrews standing outside the Colony Theater, and the lights have never shined brighter on Broadway. A who's who of New York and Hollywood have gathered for the premiere of One Minute to Play, the silver screen debut of everyone's favorite all-American football sensation, Red Grange. Oh, look, it's Charlie Chaplin stepping out onto the red carpet. Is that Harold Lloyd and Mary Pickford right behind him? Of course, none of this blitz would even be possible without C.C. Pyle, who we see just walking up with his client and star of tonight's film, Red Grange. The NFL is surely sad to lose the Time magazine cover boy, but their loss is the AFL's gain. Grange will be leading Pyle's New York football Yankees this year, a move that does make you wonder, can there really be more than one gridiron giant here in New York?
0: Far away from the flashing cameras and big city lights... In Columbus, Ohio, Joe Carr was thinking the same thing. The NFL had lost football's biggest superstar and was back on its heels. It would have to fight for players, fans, and media attention with Pyle's upstart league. Here's former NFL head coach and CBS analyst Bill Power.
4: Sometimes creating an uncomfortable environment is not an unhealthy thing. Uh, sometimes we can get too comfortable, which I think can equal complacency. Just getting comfortable being uncomfortable because I'm going to make you uncomfortable. That's the only way that you get the very best out of people.
0: Still, Carr believed the fledgling NFL had a solid structure in place and could beat back the competition. Troy Vincent, NFL vice president and former defensive
3: back...
5: My former teammate, Brian Dawkins, he used to always say, we're about to go in the dungeon. Two going to enter and one's going to leave. And it ain't going to be me that's be left behind.
0: Talking to reporters... Carr stressed that pro football was a risky, unpredictable, and costly business. Neither he nor the other owners who'd supported the game for years had gotten rich off the endeavor. They did what they did for the love of the game. To sell out the sport to someone like CeCe Pyle, who was interested only in flashy premieres and lining his own pockets, was not a recipe for long-term success. Here's Joe Harrigan, senior advisor to the Pro Football Hall of Fame.
6: The AFL represented everything the NFL didn't want to be. C.C. Pyle, he was a businessman first and really didn't give a damn about the sport. He was stealing the success of the National Football League. There was nothing uh, noble about the 1926 American Football League.
0: Back in New York, Pyle held marathon sessions with businessmen interested in funding the AFL. This is where Pyle thrived. The art of the deal, spinning tales of future success that made investors salivate.
6: He was kind of a PT Barnum of his day. He was not someone, you know, that said, oh, I'm doing this for the love of sport. He was doing it for the love of money.
0: Pyle himself was flush with cash from his barnstorming tour, and was promising to put that money where his sizable mouth was. He would fund the Grange-led New York football Yankees, but if other teams needed his help, he'd be happy to own a piece of them, too. Some might question the conflict of interest inherent in a single person owning stakes in multiple competing teams. CeCe Pyle was not one of them. Pyle started building his football organization from scratch, targeting every big city where the NFL had a presence and some where they didn't. Every team would have a hook, anchored by stars that embodied the team's identity. If those stars could be pilfered from Pyle's rivals in the NFL, all the better. Pyle had scheduled his New York football Yankees to play at Yankee Stadium, just 1,000 yards from the Giants' polo grounds. But how much better would it be if he also stole the Giants' star tackle and their famed coach, Bob Fulwell? To ward off further defections, Mara upped the salaries of all his players, a move that would prove costly not just to him, but for all of the NFL teams now forced to pay top dollar for talent. Here's NFL historian Chris Willis.
7: Some of the early owners of the NFL, it was a lot of Midwest. Hardworking individuals. These weren't super wealthy owners. I mean, the Broncos just sold for, what, $5 billion, you know, to the Walmart family. That's what you have now. Well, back then, you had a guy who ran a gas station.
0: Here's former Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger.
5: How hard is it to own a pro football team? It depends on how much money you have. Some of these owners just have unlimited resources and they just treat their team like a a, a hobby. But if it's your livelihood and you're really relying on wins and losses and championships, it can be probably pretty tough.
0: Next, Pyle doubled down on the Big Apple and on sticking it to Mara, too. He created the Brooklyn Horseman, not because the borough was known for its stables, but because he'd lured half of the famed Notre Dame Four Horsemen likely the greatest collegiate backfield of all time. When
7: Pyle set up the AFL, there was Newark, there was Brooklyn, and then there were the New York Yankees. And that was a direct shot at Tim Mara. You know, take a little bit away from his uh, market, from his crowd, fan base
0: maybe. Carr convinced Mara that the NFL needed its own Brooklyn team and got the Giants to waive their exclusive New York territorial rights.
7: Tim Mayer was on board with it. They wanted to win the war. They weren't going to lose to some guy named C.C.
0: Pyle. The new NFL team was dubbed the Brooklyn Lions, and they won the crucial right to play at Ebbets Field. Next on Pyle's list of NFL fiefdoms to target was Chicago, home of the Bears. If Hallis had agreed to sell Pyle a 50% stake in the Bears in the first place... This war could have been averted, but now all bets were off. Pyle wooed Bears star Joey Sterneman, telling him that if he joined the AFL, Pyle would give him his own team in Chicago to coach and run. What made this particular acquisition so shocking was that Joey's brother was Bears' co-owner, Dutch Sterneman. Pyle also had his eye on another Chicago star, 31-year-old Patty Driscoll of the Crosstown Chicago Cardinals. Pyle offered Driscoll a deal he knew the Cardinals' owner, Chris O'Brien, couldn't match.
7: The Chicago Cardinals, although they had uh, claimed the NFL
0: championship, they were in dire straits financially. Carr was worried. He had to keep the cards playing in the NFL at all costs. He convinced Hallis and O'Brien, sworn rivals in the past, to make peace in order to keep the league together. O'Brien agreed to sell Driscoll to Hallis for some much-needed cash. Ben Roethlisberger.
5: I couldn't imagine jumping to a different team before a game or even being traded halfway through a season can be tough because the offense can be completely different. It's great having an offseason with a team so you can get to know what a receiver's like or a running back or a line. When you're asked to lead these guys, you need to know people. It's hard to just walk into a locker room and be like, hey, guys, I'm your new leader.
0: O'Brien hated to lose his star especially to the Bears. But he was going to lose him anyway, so better to keep Driscoll in the NFL if he could. Bill Cower.
4: A lot of times it's not what you're willing to um, uh, contribute to something, but it's what you're willing to sacrifice that could be the, the, the one intangible that can really get you over the top.
0: Carr knew from experience this war would be one of attrition. The more teams he started with, the better chance he'd have some standing at the end the NFL's priority to sign teams in big markets had to be paused indefinitely. Here's Joe Harrigan.
6: Some of those weaker teams were there, as I keep saying, as just the cannon fodder for the bigger teams.
0: They would be pawns to sacrifice. But such are the hard decisions of generals and league presidents alike. But if Carr, Hallis, and Mara had hoped to scare off CeCe Pyle, they did not know CeCe. He convinced the entire Rock Island independents to switch their allegiance from the NFL to the AFL instead. Pyle also went on to add teams from new cities, including the Los Angeles Wildcats, Boston Bulldogs, Cleveland Panthers, and Newark Bears. As for L.A., no one expected them to compete all the way from California. Instead, they were a traveling team, packed with West Coast stars There was no doubt CeCe Pyle was a hustler, showman, and conjurer of the highest order. But credit had to be paid where credit was due. In less than a month, starting with just one star player, he'd managed to create an entire rival football league across the country, utterly from scratch. Jack Silverstein is a Chicago sports historian.
3: The line in Wayne's World when uh, one of them says to the other, is it smart to sell a show we don't own? And he says, by tonight we will. That was CeCe Pyle.
0: The fact that Pyle himself owned or co-owned half the teams in the AFL and thus would be playing himself in many of the matchups was a conflict of interest that no one needed to know about. As for Carr's rush to bolster the NFL's ranks, Chris Willis explains it.
7: Carr and the NFL was much more established. They increased the league by seven, eight, nine teams or whatever. They wanted to do it with more teams, more games to battle the AFL.
0: When the dust had settled, The NFL boasted 22 teams to the AFL's nine. If Grange had any issues with Pyle blowing up their relationship with the NFL, Grange kept his feelings private. He deferred to Pyle's business savvy and was falling ever deeper under the promoter's magical spell. Pyle and Grange were off to Hollywood to promote themselves and hang with movie stars. For Red Grange, the Wheaton Iceman, it was an eye-opening experience. Chris Willis.
7: Range trusted Pyle and he always went the bat for Pyle because whatever Pyle promised, he gave the red. Whether It was money, whether it was the opportunities to do movies and advertisements and things like that. He delivered uh,
0: everything he told him. Here's former New York Giants quarterback Eli Manning.
5: Definitely had the opportunity to work on my acting skills and be in some commercials and try to take, you know, great pride in those. Uh, I got to do a number of them with my dad and with my brother, which are always the most fun, but making sure football, you know, that is your job.
0: Grange's movie deal was being financed by Joseph Kennedy Sr., none other than the father of future president John F. Kennedy. The silent film he made with Grange was called One Minute to Play, and it was big shocker. A football story. The main character, Red Wade, defies his father's wishes and, another spoiler alert, single-handedly wins the big game for his college. Critics loved it, saying, If you've never seen Red Grange play football, now's your chance, for he plays it like everything in this picture. Jack
3: Silverstein. Red Grange had drawn people. Michael Jordan would describe his early days in many of the same ways. When he was in college, he's a good, sweet guy who had this unstoppable, unlimited potential to be the center of of a capital empire. I mean, that was MJ, and that was Red Grange.
0: Joe Kennedy tried to convince Grange to ditch football and become an actor full-time, but Grange was not ready to hang up his cleats. He had real football to play and opening day was fast approaching. It seemed like nothing could stop Grange and Pyle. The NFL would soon be relegated to history's dustbin. However, there was one last wild card still in play. A rising star whose popularity was on track to rival that of Red Grange himself. A player whose choice of league could tip the balance of power one way or the other. That man was the amazing Stanford fullback, Ernie Nevers. AKA the Blonde Bull. Born in Willow River, Minnesota in 1903, Nevers and his good friend, Ole Hogsrude tried out for the high school football team together. Eventually, Nevers lost his baby fat and his natural abilities showed through. Nevers wanted to handle the ball in every play quarterback Aaron Rodgers.
6: In my sporting career as a young person I always wanted to be in that position of influence so point guard and basketball pitcher shortstop and baseball and then obviously quarterback and football you know having the opportunity to touch the ball every single play to have a direct impact on the game was always meaningful to me and always wanted you know to have the ball in my hands.
0: When he got to Stanford Nevers got his chance at fullback and quickly became a legend for never being tackled for a loss in three years of varsity play. Chris Willis.
7: When you look at Ernie Nevers' playing style, I mean, he was definitely the bruiser. He had no uh, wiggle in his moves. He was, uh, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust, but it was hard to stop him.
0: Here's legendary running back Barry Sanders.
2: It actually did feel good to lower your shoulder. Normally it was a guy my size or smaller and be able to run him over or run through him. i prided myself in that. For me, it was good to at least have that ability just because you want to keep guys on their toes.
0: Things really clicked when Pop Warner, Jim Thorpe's old coach from Carlisle, became Stanford's new head coach. Nevers loved Warner and would do anything for him. Warner said that Nevers was a player without fault. He could do everything Thorpe could do, and he always tried harder. After a brilliant 1925 Rose Bowl against Notre Dame and their famed four horsemen backfield, Nevers was deemed the greatest fullback of all time by Notre Dame's legendary coach, Newt Rockne. It made sense that both leagues were desperate to sign Nevers to their cause. Pyle sent Nevers an offer letter, promising him $15,000 to play in the AFL. An offer Nevers had all but accepted. But before Nevers could make it official, he got a surprise visit from his old childhood friend and high school teammate, Ole Hogsrood. Ole had bought out the struggling Duluth Kellys, an NFL team named after a local hardware store. Ole renamed the team the Duluth Eskimos, and, fun fact, they were one of the first teams to use a logo, a cartoon igloo along with their team name. Of course Ole’s purchase of an NFL team at a time when his best friend was the nation’s number one football recruit wasn’t just a coincidence. Carr knew the connection when he blessed the sale. Ole asked Nevers to forget his dreams of playing on a big city team and come play for the Eskimos, a team that had played all of three games in 1925 and lost every one of them. Nevers showed Pyle's offer letter to Ole, who noticed the signature line was still blank. Ole offered to match Pyle's offer right there and then and give Nevers 10% of the gate for bigger games. Nevers put out his hand and in one swift motion joined the NFL over the upstart AFL. Chris Willis.
7: The owners didn't uh, become excited about the season, that they can compete against the AFL, and that they have games uh, with a true superstar.
0: Carr couldn't help but beam with pride at his coup. Oles' team was now the league's most sought-after matchup. Quickly, he had 19 league games scheduled for the Eskimos and 10 exhibition games as well. Unfortunately, given the extreme cold and distance to Duluth, all but four of the games would be held on the road as a traveling team. Here is Chicago Bears legend Mike Singletary. It was
2: shocking that it could get that cold. You know, I'm breaking my keys off in my, my car door.
1: Uh, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You got snot running out of your nose. It's freezing on your, on your lips. It's <laughs> like, this is, this is bad, man.
0: Back in the AFL, Pyle held a meeting with all his new owners. A neat trick, given that Pyle was a significant shareholder in four of the nine teams. So he was largely meeting with himself. Opening day was scheduled to feature Red Grange and the New York football Yankees taking on the Cleveland Panthers in beautiful new Yankee Stadium. Then, a nearly 60,000-seat capacity venue. Here is journalist Jay Glazer. That pressure is
4: not for everybody. More media, more attention, more immediacy to win every single week. But there's a huge difference when you walk into practice in Cincinnati, the number of cameras there, and walk into Giants locker room. There's nothing like it. Chris
0: Mara.
6: The public scrutiny you get around here from wins or losses is extremely difficult to deal with at times.
0: The SVP of communications for the
3: NFL, Tracy Perlman. I think there are some players who would tell you, I played in Green Bay my whole career. If I had played in New York, I'm not sure I would have survived. So I think you have to have a special medal to be able to play in one of those big media markets.
0: Would the AFL's star power in major cities outshine the sheer volume of NFL teams playing across the Midwest and Northeast? The answers would be revealed soon enough, with winners and losers measured in gate receipts and dollar bills. Pyle encountered a setback right out of the gate. His deal for Yankee Stadium was to play AFL games in baseball's offseason. But the Yankees, coming off a terrible 1925 season, had defied expectations and were playing in October in the World Series. Pyle had to scramble to relocate Grange's first game to Cleveland. Still, they ended up playing to 22,000 fans, the biggest football crowd ever seen in Cleveland. The biggest surprise of the day? Range and the Yankees lost. Pyle had been so focused on bringing in stars at the skill positions that he completely ignored building a competent offensive and defensive line. Former tight end Tony Gonzalez.
5: Obviously you get a quarterback, then you got to build a defense around that quarterback. Because you can be the greatest quarterback, but to win a Super Bowl, you better have the defensive side. Just ask Drew Brees and Peyton Manning. That's the reason Tom Brady has won seven Super Bowls is because of his defenses.
0: The result was an ugly 10-0 game. Pyle was just thankful the New York media's focus on the World Series bought him time to recover. When the World Series ended, Pyle and Grange readied for the home opener with 60,000 fans crammed into a decked out stadium. Their opponents were the LA Wildcats, but rain, a torrential downpour so bad it flooded the recently completed Yankee Stadium proved to be a bigger headache than baseball in October. Grange and all the rest slipped and slid across the field. Only 20,000 soaked fans showed up for the game. Up the road at the polo grounds for the NFL Giants, Mara would have killed for that kind of attendance. His only consolation was to look over at Yankee Stadium through his binoculars and know that Pyle was suffering too. Both men had hoped to knock the other out when the bad weather passed, but it never did. The storms kept coming for everyone the rest of the season. Here's NFL historian Chris Willis. All the publicity and the, the good stuff that happened in 1925 almost was
7: lost in 1926 with this battle because the crowds were split, the weather was terrible, that fall, a lot of rain, you know, no teams made any money.
0: When Mara met up with Hallis in New York, the reality was a crowd of fewer than 8,000. They both could only dream of the 73,000 fans who had taken in the glorious Grange game a year before. Also returning to the battlefield were longtime NFL heroes, men whose names still had power, even if their legs did not. Both Jim Thorpe and Fritz Pollard returned to the teams where their stars first burned bright and they helped lift the league but there would be no storybook endings for either man. When Canton played Akron, the game ended in a 0-0 tie, and neither man did much in front of a meager crowd. While attendance and play on the field were reaching new lows, the cost of doing business was reaching ever higher. Player salaries nearly tripled in a single season. There were now 600 players spread among 31 teams across two leagues. Again, Chris Willis. The 26th
7: season, especially for the NFL, uh, was definitely a financial disaster and lackluster on the field. There was less good players. A lot of the teams weren't that competitive.
0: One of the few teams to have any financial success was the Duluth Eskimos, led by Ernie Nevers. With that said, the Eskimos' schedule was as insane as anything pro football had devised before or since – even including Grange's barnstorming tour. The Iron Men of the North, as the Eskimos were known, played 25 games on the road with just a 14-man roster, playing both offense and defense, and at one point completing four games in eight days former tight end Rob Gronkowski.
4: I just couldn't imagine playing that many in, in in consecutive days or even two games in consecutive days. You need your rest, you need your recovery from the game of football, and once a week I think is uh, the right thing to do.
0: At $65,000 for the year with salary and percentages, Nevers became the NFL's highest paid player. But he earned every penny.
1: You keep playing, right? And you play because you know the fans depend on you every single week.
0: Donald Driver was a wide receiver for Green Bay.
1: I've broken more fingers from Brett Favre's balls than probably anybody else than Aaron Rodgers, right? So, but the thing is, I still catch the ball, you know? So I think you, you, you play through it. Week in and week out, it's about taking care of your family, right? Making sure that mom never has to work again, dad never has to work, grandparents never have to work, brothers and sisters can live their life. That's what it's all about.
0: Red Grange was already struggling as the cumulative effect of his own excessive schedule, past and present, took its toll. And though he still had moments of brilliance, they were harder to come by without 10 other men of high caliber to support him. By the halfway mark, one thing was clear. This was no longer the halcyon days of 1925. In the AFL, Lousy weather had canceled so many games that five teams officially folded. The remaining AFL teams, the Yankees, Quakers, Wildcats, and Bulls, were still pressing forward, but they all had one thing in common. They were all largely funded by C.C. Pyle himself. He was keeping his league afloat, but it was taking on water fast. Rumors spread of a possible merger for the two leagues, But Pyle put the kibosh on that, saying the rain couldn't keep on forever and their luck would soon change. His luck did change. They got worse. Grange was hurt in a Thanksgiving Day game and had to sit out the second half. The Yankees lost to the Quakers and fell out of contention for the AFL championship. Without Red Grange challenging for the title, the whole league seemed to lose steam. Not that the NFL was killing it either. Seven teams had folded, and more would do so by season's end. Carr had predicted correctly that this would be a war of attrition. In his quest to frustrate Pyle, Mara had hemorrhaged forty dollars to $60,000. If this war didn't end soon, there would be nobody left to pick up the pieces. As the season wound down for both leagues, the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, based outside of Philly, were crowned NFL champs. The Philadelphia Quakers were crowned champs of the AFL with little notice from the press who had tired of so much bad football. To salvage a season that was somewhere between disappointing and disastrous, CeCe Pyle channeled his inner George Hallis and tried to add one more big game to the schedule. Four decades before the Super Bowl was a glimmer in the NFL's eye. Pyle envisioned a single winner-take-all game between two competing leagues. It was a final chance to declare his league the winner in the Grange War. Bacar wanted total surrender and advised the Yellow Jackets not to play the game. The Frankfurt owner had no intention of giving Pyle the satisfaction. Jay Glazer.
4: The commissioner, look, his job, he works for the owners, but he also got to keep them in check, right? Then he has teams complaining, he's you've got to have the thickest skin in the world to be the commissioner in the NFL. He's never woken up and been like, wow, everybody loves me today.
0: Mara got wind of Pyle's end-of-season maneuverings and saw an opportunity to get his revenge. Mara challenged Pyle and the AFL's champion Quakers to a game with his seventh-place Giants at the polo grounds. It was a risk, but Mara wanted to be the one to knock the arrogant showman to the mat. Pyle jumped at the matchup playing in New York, the NFL versus the AFL, with the opportunity to beat Mara with his old coach, now in Philadelphia, it was exactly the kind of headline-grabbing intrigue CeCe Pyle wanted. Here's Chris Berman.
1: 5,000 fans have braved the elements to see their seventh-place NFL giants more than hold their own with the AFL champion Quakers. The snow is still coming down. Hard on this miserably cold day here at the Polo Grounds. Blanketing the field and hiding landmines of ice and mud all over the place. Honestly, I haven't seen the line markers on the field since the first quarter. Not that it matters for the Quakers, who haven't gotten past midfield all game. As for the New York 11, they have only a field goal to show for their hard-fought efforts as we head into halftime.
0: In the second half, the weather turned even worse. But the Giants grew stronger. They put together a sustained drive that ended with Captain Jack McBride plowing his way through the Quaker defensive line and crashing into a snowbank in the end zone for a touchdown. Their defense held, and they strung together another set of plays to build their lead to 17. It put the Quakers in a do-or-die situation on their next possession.
1: The two teams come to the line, or what I think is the line, with the Quakers looking to score their very first points. The snap. Quakers quarterback George Sullivan is going to air it out, but there's Giants captain Jack McBride for the pick. Interception, New York. He could go all the way. Touchdown. The Quakers. They're fuming. Running back Joe Costa cheap shots McBride in the end zone, and oh man, Al Nesser, the last of the fabled Nesser brothers and last pro player not to wear a helmet. He just dropped Costas with a right hook on behalf of the Giants team, and I think it's safe to say the entire NFL.
0: With that punch, the story of pro football's origins, which launched with Al Nesser's oldest brothers over 25 years earlier, had finally come full circle. What started as organized chaos by a ragtag group of immigrants and boilermakers on Sunday mornings to blow off steam was now looking a lot like the sport we recognize today. By the end of that championship game between the NFL and AFL, Mara's giants had rolled over Pyle's Quakers 31-0. For Tim Mara, Joe Carr, George Hallis, and the rest of the National Football League, the win was as emotionally satisfying as they come. Pyle had been humiliated and was forced to acknowledge he'd lost the war for football. It was finally time to make peace. Here's NFL historian Chris Willis.
7: Once the AFL folded, the NFL had to make a decision on what to do with CC Pyle and Red Grange. I mean, obviously, Pyle had the, the most popular player in pro football still under contract. So the NFL was willing to let bygones be bygones and negotiate with Pyle. This time around, though, Mara held all the cards.
0: They called their agreement a merger of the two leagues. But really, the AFL was dissolved, and only Red Grange and the Yankees joined the NFL. The other teams were left in debt and picked over for scraps. Mara would allow the Yankees to operate in New York, but they could only play four games there a season. Mara got to choose the dates, and only on weekends when the Giants were away. Pyle must have hated it. But he had no choice but to agree. Red Grange, now a shell of himself, only two years into the league, was left to wonder if he had a comeback in him to restore his tainted glory. Time would tell. Here's Buffalo Bills quarterback Jim Kelly.
1: The thing is, uh, the older you get when you're done playing, the, when you walk away from the game, you wouldn't believe how many times I've heard. Uh, was it worth it? Every single hit was worth it.
0: Here's former Oakland and L.A. Raiders defensive end and Fox Sports commentator Howie
1: Long. Listen, here's the thing about football. One of the greatest gifts that football gives you is that after football, everything else in life is easy.
0: After the season, Carr surveyed the damage. It was not a pretty sight. Of his original 22 NFL teams, 18 lost money and only 12 would go on to play in 1927. Hallis, for his part, could only hope that his Bears' glorious 1925 money-making season wasn't an aberration. The only owner besides the Packers' Curly Lambeau, who still both played and ran the show. Little did either man realize it would be the intensity of this rivalry that would fuel the future of the league. And little did Hallis, with his big city Bears suspect it would be Lambeau's small-town Packers, with their unique financial backing of the local community, that will become a dominant force in the decade to come. Aaron Rodgers.
6: We obviously want to beat the Bears every time we play them, uh, but we've definitely got the best of them. We've actually flipped the all-time series where when I got in the league, and even when Farby became the starter, we were way behind on the head-to-head, and now we're ahead by, I think, seven or eight wins. Uh, in the all-time series, so we love beating those guys.
0: Hall of Fame coach Mike Ditka.
1: We were the best, absolutely the best in 1985. None better. One of the best of all time, probably was. So I'm very proud of that.
0: As Joe Carr reflected on how far he'd come, from the grit and obscurity of the railroad yard to the pressures and headlines of the national stage... What started in the small industrial heartland of Canton, Ohio, was now a full-fledged national industry. The Ivy League elites, who once looked down their noses at the NFL, now did so at their peril. It was on the cusp of becoming a great American pastime. In time, it could be the greatest. Here's Joe Horrigan.
6: Joe Carr is the most underappreciated member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but maybe most underappreciated contributor to the National Football League. He was always about protecting the league first. Individuals come and go. This is, you know, league first, or we all die on the vine. It is a tenet of the the league that Joe Carr set up that lives today the idea of, the shield is greater than the logo.
0: For the heroes of yore, both Jim Thorpe and Fritz Pollard had played their final games in the NFL. Hall of Fame wide receiver of the Minnesota Vikings, Chris Carter.
5: You know that it's a business, and if you don't do your job, they'll get somebody to replace you.
0: Ben Roethlisberger.
5: I had played the game for a long time. Got to accomplish a lot of things in this game. Um, I knew my body was was starting to wear down a little bit, but I also knew that the team was ready to move on. You know, just knowing that they were were kind of done with me just also helped me move along. I think so few people get to just leave on their own terms.
0: Thorpe managed to have one last highlight, laying a crushing blow on Ernie Nevers that the fullback said felt like he were being pile-driven three feet into the ground. Here's former NFL head coach Bill Cower.
4: Those are the kind of guys, people that you want to have around for a long period of time. And I think they've always come along. Uh, sometimes it's through a skill set. Sometimes it's through leadership. And and hopefully there's something that uh, they can leave that kind of sends the message for other players behind them as the proper way of being able to be the consummate pro.
0: Fritz Pollard was also fighting more than just a fading body. His forced retirement marked the beginning of the end for black players' participation in the league. Here's Damian Thomas, sports curator for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture.
2: It's interesting when we think about why Fritz Pollard is not as well known as Jackie Robinson. We know less about about the social context in which Pollard came to prominence than we do of Jackie Robinson.
3: Jack Silverstein. You could say that Fritz Pollard was the first black player in the NFL. He's the first black quarterback in the NFL. He's the first black
4: coach in the NFL.
0: Former safety Malcolm Jenkins.
4: You look at who your coach is, who's standing in front of the room. It's very common to see a position coach or a low total pole coach to look like you. But the higher you go, the less of you you'll see.
3: Fritz Pollard is that forgotten man in what could have been a lineage but wasn't.
0: The Grange War wasn't a victory without casualties. Picard had kept the dream of an organized and unified league together through thick and thin. Peyton Manning.
5: Football wouldn't be the same today if it wasn't for Grange and Thorpe and Pollard and George Hallis and some of the founding uh, people of the NFL. There wasn't wide interest in uh, football back in those days, but you know guys like Grange were just pioneers in kind of establishing the sport and certainly um, very thankful for all those guys because they established the platform and kept people interested.
0: And so there it was. The NFL had a future. Complicated, yet promising. Despite prohibition and mounting racial strife, It was still the roaring 20s, and anything was possible. The stock market was soaring, and the sky was the limit. For the League not to succeed now, why the entire country's financial infrastructure would have to suddenly implode out of the blue, plunging half the country out of work. And come on, what were the odds of that?
2: I would like to thank all the current and former players, historians, journalists, and everyone else who took their time to be a part of this very special, revealing experience. And most of all, I want to thank you for listening. On season two of American football, we're gonna take an even deeper dive into our history. We'll catch up with Fritz Pollard, Joe Carr, Curly Lambeau, George Hallis.
0: Don't forget my great-grandfather.
2: Tim Mara. That's him. And introduced a whole new roster of names, names like Bronco Nagurski, Sammy Ball, Kareem Griffith, George Preston Marshall, Kathleen Rubido, Burt Bell, and Johnny Blood McNally. Amid the backdrop of the Great Depression, racial and civil unrest, and a burgeoning Second World War, football is going to navigate these waters while not being immune to any of them. We'll witness the rise of a host of new teams in Detroit, Washington, D.C., Boston,
0: Philadelphia. You're forgetting my great-grandfather.
2: I said Tim Mara. We already did an entire episode about him and the Giants. Do you
0: remember that? Not that one. The other one.
2: That's right. How could I forget Mr. Art Rooney and the Pittsburgh Steelers? All of that and much more is on the way in Season 2. I'm Michael Strahan. And I'm Kate Mara. This has been American Football. Till next time.
1: American Football is an Audible original produced by The History Channel, Misher Films, and Smack Entertainment. Presented by Michael Strahan and hosted by Kate Mara. Production by High Five Content. The executive producers for Misher Films were Kevin Mishuga misher and Andy, my long-lost cousin, Berman. For Smack Entertainment, Michael Strahan, Constance May the Schwartz be with her, Marini, and Jose Alde Diaz. And for the History Channel, Jesse, don't F with cats. And for High 5 content, Andrew, the man with the plan, Jacobs. The executive producer for Audible was Nick of Time D'Angelo. Our senior writer and producer was Glenn Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fryer. Writing and additional producing by Brandon I Cannot Tell a Fibs, Todd Clean Up That Messero, Isaac Used to Be Blind but now he can see, Bobby He's Not Bronze, he's Silverman, and Liz She's Definitely Got the Polano. Additional writing by co-producer Chase The Ringer Palmer. Our associate producers Mary Never Gets Old, Hannah Flash Gordon, and Nick Graves of Wrath. Original music by Francesco the Maestro Lametra. Our lead editor was Robbie the Bone Carver. Sound design and music editing by Kirk Pearson, Lydia Fronsek, and Casey Stone of Dogmatic. Additional editing by Hey Jude Brewer, Brian Flood, Bill Lansk, and Brittany Turner. Final mastering by Michael Gino. Music supervision by Winslow, The Future's So Bright, and Premier Music Group. Casting by Jen Mello Aiello, with extra help from Jasmine Mootsina of Smack. Research and fact-checking by Bobby Silverman. Clearances by Adrian Elzey. Our recording studio was Soundbox LA. Consulting and audio provided by NFL Films, and in particular, Chris Willis, Jessica Boddy, and Linda Endress. Additional audio of President Eisenhower provided by Robert Wheeler. This season featured performances by Joe Buck, Kurt Menefee, Jim Lampley, Otto Bolden, Jeff Joniak, Bob Papa, Aaron Andrews, Gus Johnson, and yours truly, Chris, I'll Never Be Your Beast of Berman. Legal services provided by Diana Palacios and Sarah Burns of Davis Wright Tremaine. Audible head of U.S. content is Rachel Giazza. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki. Copyright 2022 by a and Networks. Sound recording copyright 2022 by Audible Originals, LLC.
2: This is Kevin Misher, the executive producer of American Football. I want to extend a special thanks to my friend, John Favreau. Without his creativity and inspiration, this story would never have been born. Episode 5, Papa Bear is dedicated to the memory of Ira Guyton.
1: Thank you for listening.